Welcome to Pebble in the Pond, a podcast that hopes to create a ripple of change for mental health. My name is Sam Stewart and I'm the CEO of the Australian and New Zealand Mental Health Association. Each year I have the pleasure of attending events to meet and connect with the most fascinating and accomplished people in mental health. Listen in as I go one-on-one with the people changing the face of mental health in Australia and New Zealand, from lived experience speakers through to researchers, academics and influential industry leaders. Our Pebble in the Pond podcast episodes may contain themes or topics of discussion that may be triggering to some listeners. If you feel you need assistance with your mental health at any time, please contact Lifeline on 13 11 14 or visit the Get Help page for additional resources at anzmh.asn.au. Joining us for episode 6 is Sean Robinson. Chief Executive of the Mental Health Foundation of New Zealand. With degrees in business and community work, Sean has held several CEO positions in non-for-profit organisations, addressing issues from child wellbeing to HIV and AIDS. He has been a management consultant to public hospitals, as well as a policy advisor to former New Zealand Prime Minister Helen Clark. As an integral member of New Zealand's mental health sector, Sean joins us to discuss the challenges, opportunities and developments being made in the country, as well as his own personal mental health journey. All right, welcome to the Pebble in the Pond podcast. Uh, my name is Sam Stewart from the Australian New Zealand Mental Health Association. And with me today, I have Sean Robinson, uh, the Chief Executive of the Mental Health Foundation of New Zealand. Sean, welcome. Thanks, Sam. Kia ora. Kia ora. As they say in New Zealand. Sean, it's a pleasure to have you. Uh, you've uh, had quite a, a decorated career already uh, in as a CEO. Uh, of you're now in charge of the fifth organisation, I think. Yep. Uh, you're a father of two. Yes. Uh, a musician. A little bit. Yep. Well, yep. What what what, mu- what uh, music? Oh, what, what I, instrument? I you play? played in just some amateur bands, you know, okay. for years, guitar and do a bit of singing. And, and you st- still do it. Sometimes bass. Yep. Yep. Still do it just for fun, you know. Yeah, good Old rockers never die. Yeah, 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 good on you. Yeah, yeah. And that's uh, you're based in Auckland, so obviously you you play a few gigs around Auckland. Uh, yeah, yeah, a few occasionally. Yep. Good on you. Well, uh, I'll have to uh, check that out sometime. You love gardening, surfing, so you're a bit of an outdoorsy type. Um, yeah. I mean, I say I'm still a surfer, but uh, you know, I, I say I these days I say I surf once every six months, whether I want to or not, <laughs> just to keep my license. There you go. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So. Uh, so you're, uh, you're currently in the role, obviously, CEO of Mental Health Foundation. Has mental health been something that you've always uh, been passionate about or wanting to get into? H- how did it come about? Well, for me, it really came through my own lived experience. So um, I lived with bipolar disorder uh, and, you know, looking right back to my teens, uh, I certainly struggled with my mental health um, for several decades before I really came to understand it uh, and um, you know, got appropriate support. And uh, I've you know, been in some very dark times of being yeah. suicidal myself you know, for a prolonged period of time and had um, you know, an attempted suicide. So I guess out of that journey, um, I have always been really interested, well, just been learning about how to manage my own mental health and well-being. Yes. And uh, in terms of my professional career, I guess, well, you know, what I do to contribute to the world, uh, I've always leaned towards 
things that are about you know, social justice um, and that's often involved health-oriented services and yeah. eventually led me into uh, public health approaches, uh, which you know to me marry very closely with notions of social justice. And uh, so all of that came together with the Mental Health Foundation role. And, uh, and, and so the bipolar diagnosis was not until, obviously, you knew you had some challenges when you were looking back on it. Mm, uh, yeah. But w w at what point did you seek help? Well, um, probably my late, I think in my sort of late 30s, really, mid to late 30s. Wow. And it, it really came, you know, as a result of um, some crises. Mm. Uh, um, like a lot of people, I had a lot of self-stigma yes. around uh, mental health issues. Um, and so they really, you know, prevented me, or I prevented myself from seeking help. Even when, um, you know, my mother, for example, would yeah. you know, wanted me to to get help. Um, and it was really, actually, one of my key symptoms was insomnia. I, I had incredibly bad insomnia, which was a bit of a, you know, which yeah. came first, the chicken or the egg. Um, yeah, you know, yeah. the insomnia was a symptom and also a driver of of my distress. And eventually. Um, I was basically abusing sleeping pills um, yes. and at that time they were very tightly controlled and so eventually the health system caught up with me and my GP said I'll keep prescribing you sleeping pills but you have to you know, go to a specialist yeah. um, and address the mental health issues. Uh, but it also came because um, actually you know, that was one pathway but another part of, of I guess my coming to address my own issues was I was very lucky. I had some friends who uh, kind of stood by me through you know, my dark times, and it was very dark, and one of my friends uh, was training to be a psychologist, and yeah. she actually said, look, I think you, you know, I think you are cyclothymic, um, if not, you know, and I didn't understand, like many people I didn't understand bipolar, and so yes. once I got a bit more of a handle on what what it was, I thought, oh, actually, that might be me. So I was more willing to seek help. So that's almost two decades of you yep. were struggling with this yep. internally. So, so was it more internal? So you, you knew that you had some sort of a challenge going on, and you weren't mm. sleeping well, and, and that sort of thing. You had some uh, some signs that things weren't mm. quite right for two decades. What, was it more the internal stigma, or was it the, was there a degree of external stigma as well that you were concerned about? Um, yeah, both, but I yeah. think initially more the internal stigma. Okay. Uh, I mean, I, I, my own experience uh, of bipolar, um, and I'm making air, mm. air um, quotations, quotations here, um, was that it got worse and worse, you know, the symptoms got worse and yes. worse over the years. And my main main symptoms were insomnia and depression and anxiety um, yes. with occasional kind of hypermanic episodes. Um, uh, so I think, you know, like a lot of people in my teens and 20s, I kind of just thought that I was weak, you know, for being depressed and anxious and yeah. uh, I should be able to sort this out kind yes. of thing. Um, and as more life happened to me, um, you know, so as you get older, you have more experiences, yes. relationship issues, stresses of jobs. I think 
those things contributed to uh, my distress. Um, yeah. And so things actually became pretty extreme in my 30s and yeah. eventually, luckily, I was very lucky, um, you know, eventually I did manage to get on a, a good medication regime. But it's been an ongoing process for the you know, subsequent 20, 25 years of also learning about the lifestyle components uh, of keeping myself well. Yes. Um, and so now I'm a, a, a very passionate advocate for promoting positive mental health. For sort of, uh, I look back and I think if I know if I'd known what I know now about mental health in my teens, it might not have stopped me getting you know the symptoms that yeah. I, I had, but it certainly would have changed the way I dealt with a lot of life situations. And I, I think that things would have been a lot less acute than they than they were. Yeah. So I'm I'm really passionate about, you know, why why can't everybody know that and also why can't everybody have the habits and the behaviours um, made easy to maintain your, your mental health and, and your positive mental health. Yes. That's uh, with the when when you're diagnosed with bipolar, uh, did was the process uh, was the the system did did you feel like it was adequate at that time? Um, look, it, it it was an interesting process. I have to say. I mean, I I I have all the advantages of the dominant culture. I'm you know I'm uh, white, middle class, tertiary educated. Yeah. Uh, I always manage to continue to work. Uh, you know, kind of in, in a way being a workaholic and abusing alcohol yes. or using alcohol to self-medicate. They were my, my kind of two things, but it, at least it kept me, you know, I never faced the financial difficulties or, you know, the social isolation that comes from not working. Um, when I went into the sort of system as it was uh, 25 odd years ago, I certainly thought if I didn't have all the skills and um, advantages that I have, navigating it would have been incredibly difficult. Yeah. Um, uh, back then, it was you know the psychiatrist was behind one-way glass, and the sort of house surgeon, you know, was sitting in front of me looking terrified because wow. they were, uh, um, and you know, it always looked like they should be in short pants because they were so young, um, and. It took quite a while to get a proper diagnosis, really. It wasn't until I got a senior registrar who had some confidence um, that I actually got a diagnosis. But it also, I, at the time, I, I thought it was kind of mildly amusing, but, but also slightly offensive to have this notion of this hidden person yeah. who was part of my the whole diagnostic process, kind of behind one my glass. It was very... It's quite a dehumanising sort of process, but I feel like you're a science project. It was really um, so. You know, uh, if I hadn't had the kind of cultural capital that I had, I think things could have been quite difficult. And I hadn't been lucky and got um, a good registrar eventually. And it was probably about the fourth or fifth person to see me. Yeah. So every time I went, it would be a different person. Um, uh, then, you know, things might have been different. 
has a lot changed in the, the systematic approach or the, uh, the early uh, intervention uh, of bipolar in New Zealand since, um, since you were diagnosed? Um, I think a lot of things have changed. Um, I, you know, I think, but, but unfortunately, just huge lack of resources uh, in New Zealand and a lack of direction until very recently means that you know, far too many people are simply not getting support, not getting support early and you know, falling through, through the cracks, really. Yeah. So um, I'm, still, uh, I'm still receiving very sporadic support from specialist services, it's more yeah. just really touching base, I guess, yeah. and I find that that's really good. I have occasionally had uh, a doctor who I find quite offensive. Um, I've been referred to as a bipolar um, mm -hmm. rather than me, um, but I've also had fantastic experiences. I had a GP for many years, unfortunately he's retired, and you know, one of the most empowering things he said was, look, you're the expert in your bipolar, Sean, only you are having your experiences, I'm just here to help. Mm. You know? And I think that's the kind of attitude that I find very, very yeah. useful and empowering. Yeah. Yeah, so not being defined by the, the disorder, but it's, yeah. it's okay, I'm still yeah. a person. Yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, as I say, I've had a very, I've been pretty fortunate. Um, I was very stable for a long time. I've had a few uh, blips in that sort of process, I guess especially as I've got older and, and one of the things that I'm observing uh, for myself is the impact of ageing on yes. my mental health as well. You know, it's, uh, it affects my physical health and it's also affecting my, my mental health. I'm in the late yeah. 50s and... Uh, yeah, and I'm not sure exactly what affects what, but um, yeah, I just I try to sort of be quite conscious of what's going on uh, for myself. So I think you know a lot of clinical practice has got a lot better. Um, I hope there's no more of the one-way glass type yeah. stuff going on. Uh, but you know our system in New Zealand is massively overloaded. There's very little early interventional support um, and so I you know far too many people are missing out um, there's I remember when I first encountered the specialist service in the waiting room you know many of the other people waiting were Maori and uh, you know that kind of just reflects the reality that Maori um, you know really disproportionately impacted by negative mental health and you know that service that I experienced you know I, at least I had the cultural understanding yeah. of, you know it, it kind of I could I could go well that's crap but I can I can negotiate my way through this but yes. it just it would have been completely inappropriate for anybody other than someone coming from you know Pākehā sort of white cultural yes. perspective. So there's still a huge amount of work that needs to be done um, to make services appropriate to different people. And the, the socioeconomic determinants, is, is that a big factor in the sort of treatment uh, that people are experiencing? Yeah, absolutely, um, absolutely. I mean, uh, as I say, I 
you know, I always managed to work and hold down a you know, reasonably well-paying job, so I, <coughs> I never had to face poverty or housing issues. Um, you know, I, I can't imagine really what it would have been like if I was also facing those kinds of issues. You're unemployed. Or yeah, if I was unemployed or I had like unstable yeah. you know, housing. Um, and, you know, those are, you know, absolutely key drivers of people's mental health experience. Um, uh, and unfortunately in New Zealand over the last 30 years we've seen, you know, a growing gap in terms of inequality. We have a housing crisis, as I saw recently that Australia is also facing these similar. very similar issues. You know, we still have massive levels of institutional racism. Um, so, you know, there are a, we have very high rates of, of domestic violence, child abuse, and neglect. So, yeah, there are some big things we need to address at that front end. With, uh, if we look at mental health, what does mental health mean for you? Because I know you often talk when you present about yeah. people uh, never really thought about what mental health actually means. Yeah, well, for me, and you know, and I, I was the same really. I've only encountered a lot of these concepts in the last few years, but yeah. mental health traditionally has always been, you know, has often been thought of in the negative. Yeah. But actually, when you think about it, your mental health is an asset, it's a positive, you know, you, um, we, we should experience and we should have good mental health, you know, just, we don't think of physical health and automatically think of illness, but yeah. we do tend to think of mental health and automatically think of mental illness or distress. So that's, you know, the notion that your mental health is a thing, yeah. you know, it's, it's a thing that you can work on, it's actually something you have some uh, capacity to impact. That was a real aha moment for me, that there are behaviours and lifestyle um, choices uh, that I can make, um, and they're not necessarily that hard, that will boost my, my well-being and maintain my, my, my sense of positive mental health. That's been really important to me, um, and so that's a key, you know, that's a key concept really. Um, and again, in, in the work of the Mental Health Foundation, we're really um, you know, quite influenced by the thought leadership of the likes of uh, Dr. Corey Keyes, who's yes. developed the, the notions of flourishing and languishing. So instead of just thinking of mental illness and lack of mental illness, which is a very two-dimensional kind of framework, the notion of flourishing and languishing sort of brings in wider dimensions. So flourishing is kind of that, that state of being where you, uh, your core sort of default setting is to have positive emotions, to be engaged, have a sense of purpose in your life, both in, you know, in, in work and community and relationships, uh, to have a, you know, the ability to bounce back from, from life's kind of uh, ups and downs, um, you know, it's it's that sort of core positive emotional state. Uh, by contrast, languishing is not necessarily being in a state of uh, significant distress, but it is uh, sometimes being described in the literature as a hollow and empty life. So people who are not particularly engaged in life, they don't really have a strong purpose, low self-esteem, 
don't have great sort of engagement and relationships um, uh, and tends to make people very vulnerable to, uh, to worse sort of emotional and, and mental states. Mm. Um, and uh, what, what we aim to do, um, and I think you know, what the objective of all responses to mental health and well-being worldwide is, should be, is really to try and promote at a population level, to promote people operating in that flourishing space. And um, that shifts the whole game because in fact you can be flourishing at, uh, and still be living with you know, a long-term mental illness. Now obviously people are at different levels of how, you know, how much of that they can achieve, but um, you know, I believe that I'm flourishing, and I have a lot of social and economic advantages, which yes. which assist me. Which you know, again, goes to those social determinants. Yeah. But um, you know, through a combination of clinical support, um, so you know, I am on medications, but also through lifestyle choices that I make. Um, so making sure that I connect with people uh, that I you know work on my relationships, I don't just take them for granted, both the breadth and depth of relationships, you know, through being physically active, through uh, keeping my mind active, so constant, you know, be, being open to new ideas and thinking and learning, um, taking time to kind of uh, notice the little things and, and sort of appreciate the things that, that give joy, you know, and that, that can lead, you know, down the path of uh, uh, mindfulness, but, you know, it can be as simple as appreciation diaries or um, gratitude, you know, gratitude um, meditation, create, you know, creating things, mm -hmm. um, you know, uh, just spending time in nature, um, yeah. even on a, you know, a, a daily basis, creating those habits of noticing the positive stuff. Um, you know, those kinds of things uh, are what help to make my life flourishing. You know, they keep me well, but beyond that, they actually boost my positive mental health. They don't just take me out of distress and, and you know, and manage my symptoms. They take me beyond that. And it is quite possible to promote and create uh, social norms where whole populations start to experience that at a higher level. And so that's the objective. Yeah. And a fair bit of work would need to be done to turn and get to that stage, obviously, but, but taking a proactive approach to educating, creating that awareness through the whole population uh, about what flourishing is uh, and and how it can be achieved. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and, and it's, it's, uh, it's more focused on behaviour, I think. I mean, it's a mixture of certainly education is part of it, but um, the notion of health education that just, if people know something, therefore they'll do it, you know, it, it, it's really not true. Um, there, there are many things we know that are good for us that we don't do. Um, so, you know, we've got a range of programs that are about um, finding ways to make it easy for people to adopt these behaviours, you know, yeah. and some of that is reminding people some of that is uh, creating kind of a sense of social norms of kind of like peer norms so um, in Canterbury we we have uh, a program called All Right which has been
running since 2011 when the earthquakes happened. Um, and it's been uh, promoting um, these kinds of behaviours and I guess creating a sense that this is normal. It's creating a sort of uh, literacy around well-being, you know, so people are more comfortable talking about well-being. Um, but for example, um, uh, you know, through almost gimmicks, you'd say, like uh, we, we produced habit sticks, which were just you know little little uh, ice block sticks that uh, people could write a uh, a behaviour on, and we made them really really quick, like do 30 seconds of walking on the spot, you know, oh. and do it every day for a week, and mark your you know mark your stick off in five kind of you know. And it's giving people an experience of the behaviour and the, yeah. and the positive um, benefits of that. We, we ran um, a photo challenge uh, through Mental Health Awareness Week, which was uh, uh, focused on engaging with nature. And every day of the week, the challenge required people to spend more time you know, in nature. So initially, the photo could be from inside, you know, mm -hmm. out a window but eventually it had to be sort of a close-up of some aspect of nature. And we had feedback from people with, you know, pretty significant lived experience that that had genuinely lifted their mood, changed their behaviour. There was one woman, it's a fantastic story, that was um, suffered from severe anxiety, so she was quite housebound. Uh, but by the end of that week, the, the photo required her to sort of be out she sort of went outside of her gate for the first time in quite some time, took the photo and, and thought, oh, I think I might just walk down and visit my mum, you know, and, and, uh, and sent the story back. So this behavior, you know, so it's creating ways to have people experience yeah. the behaviours, not just telling them that this will work. And how important is that experiential uh, learning? I mean, you, obviously, mm. you, instead of telling people and having signs and, and giving them content, the experiential side of things is obviously critical in getting them involved. Well, absolutely. I mean, um, it really is more important that people change their behaviour than they, even that they understand why they're changing their behaviour. Yep. So it's, it's finding you know, creative ways to give people that experience and then, you know, definitely encouraging them to notice the impact that it has on how they how they think and feel, and then trying to build in the kind of social norms that that's what we do, sort of create habits, but collective habits as well. Um, so we often behave the way we do because other people are behaving that way. So if more people uh, around us are eating healthy diets, then we're more likely to eat a healthy diet. So. The more we can build up their momentum, um, the better. Uh, and you know, then people do start to notice the, the positive impact that it has. So I will often, if I'm feeling a little bit down, I'll kind of do a bit of an inventory and think, what I what haven't I been doing? You know, we, yes. we take the five ways to well-being as one sort of model, and I go through, you know, like you know, have I not been connecting with people enough lately? You know, have I not been active enough physically? Have I not been taking notice of you know the little things that give me joy? Have I not been sort of taking yeah. enough time to be in the moment? Have I not been keeping my mind kind of active? And the fifth one is give. You know, have I not been actually giving my time and and um, yeah contributing to others? Uh, because you know 
uh, actually you know, doing that. Again, all of these things, they're not just warm and fuzzy, they're based on deep science about the impact that this has on brain chemistry yeah. um, and, and uh, uh, on thoughts and feelings. And more often than not, when you do that inventory, mm. do you find that you are missing or lacking one of those five? Yeah, absolutely, or? absolutely. Yeah. I you know, usually find, oh yeah, no, I haven't been doing okay. much of that lately. You know, and um, yeah, and uh, I, you know, I will find ways to do those to do those things. So I was suffering from a bout of depression a couple of months ago. One of the ways that I pulled myself out of that was I just started doing some um, some art, you know, and not I'm not a fantastic artist or anything, but just something that took me away from just being in constant thinking cognitive mode into a sort of a more of a being in the moment more intuitive sort of mode and sometimes it can be as simple as coloring in yeah. you know adult coloring in books are some of the best-selling books in it's the world fun, isn't it? yeah because well it's fun but it also just kind of brings you down to the moment yeah. um, so there are a lot of different things that, yeah. that people can do and so those because uh, I know there's statistics out uh, recently with the flourishing model with 25% yeah. currently yeah, yeah. Uh, roughly around 25% in the flourishing yeah. and the okay is 25% the languishing is 30% and then yeah. under that the mental distress is 20% yeah and you're saying and you're living proof that yeah. that even if you have a mental health challenge yeah. or, or yeah. A disorder you can still be in the flourishing group yeah if you keep uh, consciously and and intentionally trying to make sure that those key things that you've identified yep. is a part of your, your daily life. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, and it doesn't mean that I don't have times when I'm depressed. It doesn't yeah. mean that I don't have times when my you know, symptoms are, are affecting me. Um, but my core state of being is much more within that, yes. you know, that flourishing state. And do you have any idea if that's improving, if that's improved over the last 10, 20 years, that, that sort of analogy? Is in, that, New Zealand, um, yeah, in New Zealand? Uh, it's, uh, I, my guess would be that it's got worse, uh, but we haven't really measured across that sort of four dimensions yeah. very consistently in New yeah. Zealand, because the traditional uh, paradigm of mental health is very much the mental illness or lack of mental illness. And yes. so what we do have is you know more data on that and certainly the 20% experiencing a mental um, illness in any one year or, or significant mental distress, that has been going up year on year. Yeah. And in fact, that hasn't been measured since 2014, so I would imagine it's, yes. it's worse uh, than it was. And in fact, some of the longitudinal data coming out now from some studies in New Zealand is indicating that the number of people across their lifetime who will experience a significant period of distress is over 80 percent. Wow. Um, now while you know you know that's a bit of a um, potentially shocking statistic in some ways I, I kind of think well of course you know we wouldn't expect to go our whole lives and never have a physical illness injury. or a period yeah, yeah. or an injury now, why would we expect to live our whole lives and not have a time of mental or emotional challenges? Um, and, you know, quite significant. I mean, things happen. You know, we experience grief, we yes. experience change, we experience loss. You know, uh, many people are, you know, uh, dealing with trauma. Um, 
but just life mm. happens and we react to it. So uh, again, I think the stigma around mental illness has made us kind of perceive it as the exception and the other and the... Um, Extreme. Yeah, and, and the thing to be avoided rather yeah. than accepting it as uh, mental distress as part of being human and having the understandings, the skills, the support and the lifestyle that helps us to cope with that, helps us to manage it through our life course. On support, back to the bipolar diagnosis, how important or critical was the support network you had with your family and your friends, the close circle? Uh, very important, you know. Um, uh, again, I was I was pretty lucky that I uh, my medication when I finally got onto a took a while to get a medication regime that worked, but when it did work, it worked very well. So that helped a lot. Um, I I think it's become increasingly important over the years. I would have to say that some people in my social network and my my close family really didn't were very uncomfortable um, others were extremely supportive um, I wasn't open about my bipolar for many years for fear of discrimination you know uh, I've my career has led me to work in leadership roles yes. and, you know, I've been a CEO and you know five not-for-profit organisations and you know quite frankly there is discrimination uh, and you know, people my biggest fear was always when I had to make judgment calls and if they were controversial that people would kind of use my mental uh, health diagnosis you know, to undermine yeah. my credibility so I was very cautious about who I told I didn't tell everybody in my social circle um, I think my immediate family and a lot of my immediate friends were like, oh, phew, we finally understand what's going on now. Yeah. And, and particularly when the, uh, the medications, you know, did have a big impact. Um, you know, I think there was a collective sigh of relief, including yeah. from me. Um, as I've got older, uh, I've become more and more comfortable with talking about my my mental health and now I would say I'm like completely open and completely out I talk about it you know yeah. national media a lot yes. and, you know, um, uh, and I'm lucky you know I, I have a I work <laughs> I work in, a, in the mental health foundation so obviously get a lot of support there I still encounter stigma and discrimination yeah. you know in social settings and even in work settings um, and uh, I sometimes think, oh, if I ever <clears throat> left the mental health sector, um, you know, uh, I wonder whether the fact that I've been really open about my bipolar would actually count against me, yeah. because I know there is still huge amounts of discrimination yeah. um, throughout employment and in society. But you're certainly doing your best to get it out there, and, and obviously you are doing this, I assume, with the hope that you're going to help others uh, feel that it's okay, reduce the stigma, create more awareness about how you're feeling, uh, what's going on, and, and urge others to seek help in, in a similar situation. Oh, totally. Um, 
yeah, and some of the most rewarding things that happen for my work, while, while my work is focused on systems and on population level health and on health promotion, you know, some of the real bright stars in my, in my work experience is when you know, I may have presented at a conference like this and someone will contact me and say, you know, thank you for talking about the fact that you have bipolar. I also know yeah. bipolar. I also, you know, experienced depression, and you know, you, that was really helpful. And um, often people are not do not feel comfortable to be open, um, even in the mental health mm. you know sector. Mm. Um, so but yeah, I, I hope that. That it does, and for me personally, it it actually feels so much more free to be able to just talk about it, because it's not who I am. Yeah. You know, part of my uh, you know, my bio, I always say I'm all these things. I'm a parent. I'm yeah. a musician. I'm a gardener. <laughs> I'm a this. I'm a that. You know, and I also happen to have bipolar. Yes. It's just one thing. Yeah, and and that's released a bit of a burden. Just the process of being going to be able to be so open about it, and also encourage others. And I think a big reason while people resonate so well with people like yourself with lived experience talking about it is the fact that it, it gives them that sense of hope and that they can relate uh, and and i feel like um, that's it's a reason even in our conferences a lot of the most popular streams are lived experience and, and i think a lot of that is to do because professionals even in mental health whether they're lived experience or not they they like to see how people have overcome the challenges and what they're now doing with their life as a result yeah, I, I, I hope so. Um, I mean, the other thing I'd say about being open too is that, I mean, I still suffer from self-stigma. You know, yeah. uh, um, there are times when I can feel myself starting to get low. Yeah. And I, I distinctly recall, you know, one about 18 months ago, and immediately what kicks in is, you know, I, I, I can't talk about this, you know, because, uh, you know, what will they think? I, I, what will they think? And, you know, and I have to. That voice is, you know, is constantly there. Um, and probably for, you know, maybe about a week, I kind of just kind of sat with that. And then eventually, in a staff meeting at work, I kind of because I always encourage everybody to be really open. So I thought, oh, I better do it. So I just kind of said, well, you know, I'm not at my best at the moment. I'm actually suffering from a bit of depression and anxiety. And um, Actually, what I realised, you know, that was the point at which I started to feel better again. You know, I started my, my journey back to sort of mm. um, recovery from that particular episode. And I think the energy it takes to keep it locked up inside and not to be open about where you're at is all energy that could be released to feeling better. It's a very negative energy to try and yeah. hide what's actually going on um, and contributes to the, you know, to the, the negative symptoms. They say leaders go first and that's a true sign that that's, uh, you know, with what you're doing is certainly something that uh, by sharing how you're feeling and being the, having the confidence to share that is, uh, is something that uh, more people, I guess, should take that advice and, and probably uh, do that more often. Well, I, I would hope so, but I would always say it's a you know it's a very individual decision about yeah. disclosing because not everybody is in the situation where they have the supports that I do. Yes. You know, I'm very fortunate, um, but not everybody is. You know, discrimination is very real. You know, people get uh, discriminated against at work, in families, in you 
know, uh, housing and, and all kinds of situations. And so people have to feel safe. Uh, they have to have support to, you know, be open. You know, while, yes, I would encourage people, if they feel safe, to do it and overcome the self-stigma, um, you know, we have to work as a community to make it easy. You know, I always say it's not just enough to say it's okay to talk about it. You know, we actually have to make it a downhill run. You know, yeah. we, have to, we have to make it so easy to do it that, um, that it's almost impossible not to. I mean, I've seen, in, you know, I've seen quotes from staff, anonymous quotes from staff and other you know, organisations saying, you know, look, I finally plucked up the courage to go to um, you know, employment assistance programme yes. counselling uh, about being depressed. But just as I walked in, I lost my nerve and pretended I had a different problem. You know, um, that's the kind of level of yeah. uh, of kind of stigma that we're facing, yeah. really. Um, so, yes, I think it is really uh, it, it is a responsibility for leaders to you know do what people will do, what you do, not what you say. Yeah. You know, I've talked to. CEO of another large company who who um, you know wants to have a stigma-free you know wants to advocate stigma that his organisation is stigma-free, and I said, well, that's great. You know, the best way you can do that, in fact, really the only way you can do that is if you start by talking about times when you've been vulnerable. Yes. Because if you just say it, you know, and I'm an employee, you know, I'm going to go, yeah, sure, you know, but if you do it. Okay. Okay. They mean it. You know. Vulnerability, as you mentioned, is uh, a lot of people think it's a weakness, but it's actually, as a leader, it's it's such a good sign of strength, isn't it? Well, yeah. I mean, I think so. I mean, vulnerability is never comfortable. No. You know, I don't like feeling vulnerable, mm. um, but uh, accepting that it's part of life and part of the experience of living in every aspect of living, including leadership, you know, is actually, as I say, it frees up all the energy that you take trying to hide your vulnerability and allows it to be creative and, yeah. and restorative. That, may, I mean, that completely makes sense and uh, and you've had some great advice so far and yeah, you're doing uh, some really good stuff out there, Sean, so Thank you. Uh, we're very grateful for what you're doing in New Zealand. Tell me about New Zealand mental health uh, as we Head towards the home straight. Sure. New Zealand mental health. Do you feel like it's progressing? Uh, are you feeling? Uh, I know you're saying you're on a new dawn. You're optimistic yeah. about where things are headed with the release of the, the funding and and the, the inquiry that's happened. Tell me how you what your feeling is with New Zealand mental health at the moment. Well, yeah, I do feel optimistic um, because we we have a direction. And you know, one of the key things in New Zealand is there was no direction. There was no leadership um, for probably the best part of the last 10 years. Uh, and, and, and so in that environment, when you add in mounting demand, you know, we've had a 70% increase in demand and funding in no way kept pace with that. With no direction, mounting pressure and demand, you just, you just get, you know, conflict really. Um, and uh, so we, it's fantastic that we, as a result of the inquiry, we now have a clear direction of travel, which is a good direction. You know, it is about a paradigm shift around uh, away from a purely sort of clinical model um, to 
a community. promotion of well-being um, with a strong focus on you know early intervention so that makes me feel really optimistic but we are starting from almost a standing start you know there are so many gaps in the in you know, just the service system let alone the kind of our addressing social determinants or having you know promotion of positive mental health um, that is going to be at least a decade you know probably more to turn this around um, and you know, we're going to have to balance public expectations we're going to have to balance you know there are gaps in resources across the whole continuum Workforce. Yeah, workforce issues, um, you know, the, um, uh, so there's a lot to balance. Um, you know, one thing which I think, you know, people outside New Zealand may find hard to believe is that there was actually not even a component of the uh, New Zealand Health, um, Ministry of Health, dedicated to dealing with mental health until eight months ago. You know, it's, it's amazing, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. It, it becomes sort of an, an invisible issue. Um, so, you know, we're trying to implement this major transformational change. The people who are charged with implementing it, well, you know, they're recruiting their team as they're trying to implement it. It's a bit like uh, it's a bit like the Lego movie where they're building the building the vehicles while it's you know charging fast down the track and being shot at by the you know, by the, the bad guys, you know, so, um, but despite all those challenges, I, you know, we, on the, on the really positive side, we have a government that has made well-being one of its key uh, organising themes, really. All of government activity needs to contribute to well-being. They have invested in the social determinants. They've put a major investment into service development, and as soon as they put that in, they were saying, this is just the start, there's, there's more to come. So all of those things kind of, you know, give me optimism. Um, but there is a long way to go. They talk, uh, when you think about New Zealand and, and Kiwis in general, you think about resilience uh, for what, I guess, not only mm. what they've been through, but also uh, you look at the, sp I mean, the sporting teams. I mm. mean, you're seeing netballs mm. have done really well. The mm. cricketers arguably probably mm. should have won that game. And the World Cup, uh, you've got the All Blacks who mm. have had an amazing run of dominance. Mm. And the Black Ferns, the Black, team. Yeah, and that's, and that's true as well. And so you, you mentioned uh, previously about the leadership and resilience within sport as well. Mm. Do you have any brief comments on, on how important that's been in New Zealand? And yeah, well, I, I, yes, actually, I do think, um, you know, one of the analogies I sometimes use is that, like, Richie McCaw and uh, Ruby Tui, you know, from the All Blacks and the Black Ferns, you know, have often said, and, and Rugby New Zealand will say, that it's the top 10 inches that makes them the champions. You know, it's, it's, it's the work that has been done on mental fitness and mental resilience and well-being amongst players that, is, that makes them champions. And I often say, well, why can't we all be champions? You know, yeah. why can't we all have access to those yeah. thoughts and ideas? And in fact, we're working with Rugby New Zealand um, with the support of the Movember Foundation on taking elements of their um, mental fitness program, which they have only been able to apply to their professional players, and actually driving that into school and club rugby as well. Wow. So you know, that's one of the sort of positive mental health programs that, that we're part of. But I do think that 
you know, that we we look up to a lot of our sporting heroes in New Zealand, yeah. and you know, I think particularly in rugby, um, they've done an incredible job of really reflecting what it means to have uh, mental and emotional maturity. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, we have Sam Whitelock, one of the All Blacks, is one of the key champions for our Farmstrong program. Yes. Farmer and an All Black. And uh, so, you know, we have him, you know, uh, you know doing videos yeah. telling farmers how to get a good night's sleep and how he does it before a test match and all of this, you oh, know, wow. these kinds of things. So, yeah, I think it's a good analogy. Yeah. You know, why can't we all be champions by having our top 10 inches? Um, constantly supported to be really positive it makes sense and, and people seem to resonate with that as well i think they look up to them like um, you mentioned and and strive to be like them so that that makes complete sense what uh, what are you most proud of in your career to date what, what, what's something that you reflect back on and you look at it and say well i'm really proud of of being a part of a team that's achieved that or or you personally yeah um Look, there's, there are a lot of things, and it would be really hard to, to pick one. I've also had my, you know, my challenges and my failures, you know, and you have yep. to be able to learn from those, and sometimes that's that's really really painful. Um, look, I think some of the positive mental health stuff that's happening now. That, uh, and, and I would have to say, I've really just been kind of help to facilitate it. Oh, yes. It's not it's not down to me, it's yeah. down to the really creative people that have you know, that have made this happen. But you know, when you look at things like the All Right program in Canterbury, mm. that can, you know, has strong evaluation that says hundred and thirty thousand people in Christchurch have changed their behaviour as a result of that program. When you look at the Farmstrong program, you know, and uh, uh, you know, you get 18% of farmers saying, my well-being is better because I've engaged with this and, you know, I've changed these behaviours as a result. And you look at the Tane Aura program, which is a, um, you know, very uh, um, culturally-centred, you know, kaupapa Māori-centred well-being program that we partner with, uh, with Tatihi um, uh, Trust, uh, and see the young sort of coming out with a much stronger sense of their uh, identity, well-being, pride in their uh, pride in their culture, ability to participate in their culture, uh, and you see that both the Fano and the the, the men, uh, you know, are acknowledging improvements in their well-being and their, and their goals. So that's the stuff that really thrills me. Yeah. Um, and then having people like a guy I happen to meet at a wedding say, you know, look, I suffer from depression and uh, participating in Mental Health Awareness Week over the last few years and engaging with nature, um, you know, adopting some of those habits has really helped me, so thank you very much. Yeah. You know, that's the stuff. And that's not me, that's my staff doing amazing Same. things. Yeah. So, but that's the stuff that really makes me feel great. Well, that makes sense, uh, and 
it's it's great that we have people and organisations like uh, Mental Health Foundation out there, even New Zealand. It's it's one of the longest running charities, I think, in New Zealand. 1977 is that what? Yeah, it? yeah. Well, certainly in the mental health space, yeah. it's, it's a pretty old one. So you know, over 40 years now. Um, started from the proceeds of a of a telethon. I can vaguely remember as a you know as a child kind of vaguely remember that happening. Um, so I think wow. I probably thought, what's mental health? Uh, <laughs> like a lot of people. But uh, so yeah, it's been around for a long time. I think made a lot of contributions over the years. Um, and you know, in this time of hope and change, uh, you know, we'll certainly do our bit to sort of make it as constructive as possible. Just a couple more questions. Who's been the biggest influence on your life professionally? Has there been a number of people or a couple that you want to mention? Is um, yeah, there's, there's, um, there's been a lot of people. Uh, one of the first chairs of an organisation that I worked with, a guy called Jim Greenaway, was, you know, he, he had a lot of influence on me. He, he uh, was a, uh, um, you know, very strong social justice advocate, um, had a very quiet kind of style and was very, uh, you know, he helped me to reflect on, on my own stuff personally. So he's always stayed in my mind as a real strong kind of role model, I guess. Good, good answer. So, and, and any other books that you could recommend for people, uh, whether it's leadership, mental health, whether it's just personal development? Is there any, any books you've read that have really sure. inspired I'm just you? Trying to, I'm, I'm terrible at remembering the accurate names of books and, and authors, but... Yeah, I read a book on mindfulness a couple of years ago, which, now I'm not going to be able to remember the title, but uh, yeah, I would really encourage people to explore mindfulness yes. and to, to uh, explore it in a very light way. There are lots of ways that you can be mindful during your day. It doesn't have to be about, I don't do sitting and doing formal meditation. Some people would be horrified who are practitioners of mindfulness to hear that. But I think the principles of mindfulness, uh, if you can apply them in your everyday life, yeah. can be very empowering. And last question is, what what, uh, what do you think the future holds for Sean? What do you, th what do you think, uh, more of the same? Are you, <laughs> are you looking forward to being part of implementing some new initiatives? What? Yeah, well, the future for me, I mean, definitely the immediate future is about you know, trying to uh, trying to make sure that the, the direction that the government has endorsed you know, actually gets implemented. Uh, you know, one of the biggest challenges is because it's a good 10 years of work is running out of momentum mm -hmm. and also some of the stuff that's not so front and centre like health promotion falling off the, falling off the agenda. So... Certainly for the next few years, I can see myself doing that. Um, looking beyond that, it's a bit, you know, life's what happens while you're making other plans. Um, yeah. and, you know, part of that future will be definitely my kids are yeah. going to be turning kids into be... Uh, adults, you know, over that period of time and sort of making sure that, uh, you know, I'm still part of their lives in, in, in the right way. One of my life objectives has always been to become my, my adult children's friend rather yes. than their um, parent only so you know that's 
it's another project. Well, mate, if you've got any tips on how to be a cool dad, uh, I'm sure you, you can let us know because uh, it's something we all strive for to try and get that friendship. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. If I if I tried to give you any tips, my, my kids would probably groan. <laughs> so uh, well, we won't do that live. All right. Well, thanks very much for your, your time, Sean. The, uh, I commend you on the effort uh, and the career that you've had to date. To be part of such a great team with the Mental Health Foundation and all that you're doing over there is truly inspiring and thanks for having the courage and the vulnerability to come on the show and share your story uh, and to continue to do what you're doing um, in mental health. So thanks very much. You're welcome. Thanks, Sam. Is there someone working in mental health who you'd like to be featured on the podcast? Are there more questions you want the answers to? Let us know what you want to hear. Get in touch with us by emailing any podcast suggestions to membership at anzmh.asn.au and be sure to stay up to date on our socials at ANZMHA on Facebook, Twitter and LinkedIn. Thank you very much for listening and we look forward to sharing our next conversation.